Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 20 years ago last month, I walked into the first ever Liberty Church service. It was at 24th and Poplar in the art museum neighborhood. And I didn't know it was the first service. I had no idea. I was invited, so I went. And I didn't have a church I was going to regularly. Um, it was just before Christmas, and um, it was 4 p.m. And I remember it was uh, already getting dark that time of the year. It was full of candles. And I said, well, this is weird to go into a basement. It was in the basement of the Philadelphia Mennonite High School, if you've ever been there where City School, I think still is, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, A year later, I was baptized. Just under a year later, I was baptized in that basement. And about four months later, this congregation had its first worship service. Uh, After less than a year and a half, those two churches said, okay, we're not that big, but we kind of feel pregnant because there's enough people to lead something in another neighborhood and more churches are closing every month than open in Philadelphia and really around the nation. So let's start something else. That was Easter 2004. And since then, if some of you have been along for this journey, you know we've, we've planted a lot of churches as a communion of churches. We're all individual churches. Uh, our own elder teams, deacon teams, staffs, budgets. Uh, but we partner together for mission in the city and the region. And there's been well over a dozen planted. Some have closed there's eight right now, and it being the 20-year anniversary, the Liberty Communion of Churches, there's this elected leadership team that you know, kind of gives some wisdom, uh, and then they kind of re- reassemble and re-vote on, on, on a community uh, of leaders for the whole communion, uh, led by Steve Huber, who planted this church. They said, why don't you spend some time early this year remembering what we did this for in the first place? and looking at what we're doing, and looking at where God's calling us next. And that's gotta involve some celebration. It's definitely gotta involve some repentance. And it's gotta involve a lot of hope. If we're gonna keep going. And we are. What's the mission statement of the church? I wonder if you know. It's on the homepage of our website. Maybe you went on our website to find this worship service. In big letters it says, we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for the surrounding neighborhoods. Now, that is kind of an audacious thing to say. We're just the presence of Jesus when we show up. It is kind of, but it's okay to say because Jesus kind of demands that we do. Um, So many times in the New Testament, and if you ever come to a New to Liberty class, um, 
there's a four-part class we offer, one of them every month, and so there's a cycle. Most of you have been through them, uh, through one or more of them. And the one we do on church takes a look at the fact that all through our New Testaments, uh, the, the church is referred to as Jesus' very body. This is Ephesians 4. This is 1 Corinthians 12. This is Colossians 2. When we beat on this point, we're not like pulling out an obscure passage and like, all right, I guess we've got to talk about ourselves as Jesus' body, I guess. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Ephesians 1 even says that the church is the fullness of Christ himself. That means his life, his power, his mission is worked out fully through us. And of course, not just us. Every community called by his name, listening to his word, filled with his strength and trying to follow him into the world. We live as the very presence of Jesus, and we also speak and serve as the very presence of Jesus. Until Lent, until Ash Wednesday, we're actually going to get together and pray. That's Wednesday, February 22nd. We're going to look at what Jesus is calling us to do, how we've done so far, what we're doing now, and what he's calling us to. And we're going to spend a few weeks looking at what it means to live as the very presence of Jesus. Then a few weeks looking at what it means to speak as the very presence of Jesus. And then a few weeks looking at what it means to serve as the very presence of Jesus. And when we talk about living as the very presence of Jesus, which is where we're going to start today, I cannot think of a better passage than John 15. I actually uh, walked with about 30 of you, uh, 35 of you, uh, through this passage carefully at our fall leadership retreat. But I've never spoken on this passage from the pulpit. Not on a Sunday morning. If you're not familiar with the Gospel of John, there is a deep contrast at the heart of this passage, which is part of a larger unit that really stretches from chapter 13, which is where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, all the way through John 17, which is where we get this inside picture of the life of the Trinity, where you have Jesus in the Spirit speaking to the Father on behalf of the church. Take some time and read it if you've never just hung out there. But it all happens on Maundy Thursday, John 11 through th uh, 13 through 17. The night Jesus was, is arrested and the night before he's crucified. So that's the context of this passage. And for the most part, in this section of the Gospel of John, John 13 through 17, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he has to leave them because he's about to die. But at the same time, he tells them over and over again in this long five-chapter discourse, he tells them over and over again, it's actually going to be better because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, who is also God himself, and when he fills you, you are going to have my presence with you, my life with you in an incredibly significant way, greater than you do now as I'm here with you in the flesh before my death. And with all this in view, Jesus says, I'm going. I've been with you for years. I'm going now. But don't leave me. Don't find life anywhere else. Remain. This fascinating word is used 10 times in John 15, 1 through 11, it's the word abide. We don't use it that much anymore. Abide. It just means remain. It means to dwell. It means to be rooted. It means most of all something like draw life from me alone. 
Abide, remain in me. If you ever want to know what it looks like to live as the very presence of Christ, this is it. This week and next week, John 15, 1 through 6 today, two rhythms that are a part of this abiding in Christ. First, there's the abiding. That's our work in Jesus' work. He says, you abide in me, and I'm abiding in you. And there's a second rhythm that we also need to talk about. It's the work of the Father. It's the work of pruning. Two points in this passage for today. Abiding and pruning. It's a simple metaphor, but I got to tell you, and if you want to just sit with these words, it keeps giving and giving. He's the vine. We're the branches. And through the branches, empowered by the life of the vine, we bear fruit, or we don't. That's the metaphor. The branch itself cannot bear fruit unless it remains in the vine. The worst thing a branch can do is to think that it has its own roots, to think that the branch is the life of the organism, to think that the branch uh, is on its own and nurtures itself by its own resources and stretches out into the world, into the air, and will bear fruit by its own strength. This never has happened in the history of the world. It never will happen unless it's got roots. Branch by itself doesn't have roots unless it's in the vine. And we need to understand that this metaphor, it's showing us fruit coming off of branches isn't like this nice extra thing that happens for a flourishing, lively vine. No, I mean, think about this for a second. If you're looking at a tree and you look at a branch in the, the middle of summer and it doesn't have a single leaf on it, you don't say, uh, branch is fine. It just looks like no, no leaves this year. No, that means it's dying or it's dead already. It is not possible to be a living branch and not bear fruit. To be alive in Christ is to bear fruit. And what's the fruit? We're going to come, hear me now, believe me later. The fruit is living out Jesus-type things, Jesus-type characteristics, Jesus-type moods and words and actions and missions. That's the fruit coming out of us the branches. And Jesus summarizes it all in verse 4. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that sounds crazy. I'm doing things all the time. I'm screaming at my kids all the time. <laughs> That's doing something. I'm, I'm, um, I'm sleeping in late all the time. You know, I'm, um, I'm, having, I'm struggling toward good habits and away from bad ones or not, or collapsing back into bad habits all the time, already into a New Year's resolution. I'm doing things all the time. What do you mean, Jesus? I can do nothing. Well, think about it this way. Whenever you want to do something, whenever you want to accomplish something, whenever you want to go out into the world and actualize something, make something happen, whenever you want to secure something good in life for you or the people you love, what do you do whenever you want to stop something from happening, whenever you want to resist something, when you want to control anything in the world? In one way or another, you're drawing on roots, you're drawing on some kind of inspiration or 
unction or zeal or vision of the good life. You're drawing on something. You draw on roots. And don't we tend to draw on roots other than Christ? If I'm faced with a challenge, what do I do? I try to think, fix things by my own strength. I try to organize chaos. I go into hyperactive mode. Or I'm just overwhelmed and I collapse and freeze by my own strength. The panic, the fear, the vengeance. Sometimes the roots are just the high of getting things right. Being vindicated in your own eyes. It feels amazing for five seconds. Pain. Pain drives a lot of, a lot of our going out into the world. Or even just the feeling that I need to leave a legacy. These are all roots that the scriptures call the flesh in contrast to life in Christ, which is walking by the Spirit, if you're familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul, particularly Galatians 5. John says, Jesus says, as John records earlier in the Gospel of John in John 6, he says, let me tell you something, folks. If it's not in the Spirit, it's no help at all. You know, we say things like that. It's like, oh, that's no help at all. Jesus says that in an absolute sense, which is actually what the words say. No, nothing, no help. An absence, a vacuum of any kind of possible help at all. That is an absolute statement in terms of Jesus' life affecting anything positive in the world. It comes from all of those things. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing that is ultimately fruitful. I was, I was thinking of examples of this and thinking about you and me, and rather than embarrass myself or you, or draw something from, from the news, I, I was compelled to look back into Scripture. Um, I've been talking to a brother in this church, Matt. Uh, he's been going verse and verse, verse by verse through the book of Exodus. And I was reminded of the story of Moses. Do you remember the story early in the narrative of Moses' life in the book of Exodus? where Moses is this conflicted character because he has this split identity. He is both the oppressed and the oppressor, remember? He's an, he's an Israelite, he's a Hebrew slave, but he's raised in the house of Pharaoh and taken care of by the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And as he's wrestling with this, as he's trying to resolve it, as he's wanting to affect some kind of change or equilibrium in the world or justice in the world, do you remember when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew? And they're both him. And he goes out and he murders the Egyptian. And in his zeal, he becomes what he hates. He lives out what he hates the most. The roots are no good. So what does he do? He's got to flee into the wilderness. He goes to Midian for 40 years and he gets to the point that he never wants to go back again and remember either identity for the rest of his life. And we know this because when God calls him back, he says, no way. Their plight is theirs. Send somebody else. Also the wrong roots. The roots of self-preservation. Becoming, becoming another kind of thing that he hates. Somebody cut off from the life of God in the world. Neither are life in Christ. Until Yahweh, the I am, you know, he, will, he reveals his name to Moses as the I am. He says, I am with you. Now go. With me. Not in your way. Not with your roots. With me. 
And I got to tell you, life was way harder. Life was way harder than it was when he was in Egypt, and it was way harder than it was when he was in Midian. Here's what I'm trying to say. When Christ says, abide in me, he says, if we want life to emerge from us, we will rest in him, trust in his promises, hold on to his words, do life as he does it, and it is the way to bless and be blessed. But there's this warning, and this is the second point, and Moses tasted it. Just like for Moses, living by unrighteous zeal on the one hand or apathy on the other, were much, much easier. But both were death. Both were totally cut off from the life of Christ. Walking with Christ, living as an extension of Christ's very life, is life itself, but it is much, much harder because this abiding requires lots of pruning. That's the second point. Do you know what pruning is? Uh, We might think we do, but just just for the sake of the illustration, this biblical illustration, um, I did some reading on the art of gardening. For any of you gardeners out there, this this will not be news to you. The gardening of vines is called viticulture. Viticulture or viticulture. The Webster's Dictionary says you can pronounce it in either way. So I will choose the one I like best, which is viticulture. Here's how one vine dresser describes the work of pruning vines. Viticulture consists mainly of pruning. You do more pruning than you do anything else in maintaining a vine. First, all dead wood must be ruthlessly removed. And second, the live wood The stuff that's going well on the vine must be ruthlessly pruned back. Dead wood harbors insects and disease and may cause the vine to rot, so it's got to go. But live wood even must be trimmed back in order to present such heavy growth that the life of the vine goes into the wood rather than into fruit. What does that mean? Well, come into some application for you and me. We expect uh, stuff that's not going well, stuff that's obviously sin, stuff that we're doing that's naughty or bad, God to maybe once in a while, like, cut back. Like, hey, you're going to taste some of your consequences. Maybe don't do that anymore, even though there's grace. Of course, there's always grace, but he's also a disciplinarian because any good parent is. But what about the stuff that's going well? What about stuff that's awesome? And then life happens. Jesus is saying, this is for the sake of your life and me. Two concrete reasons why the father, who's called in this metaphor, the vine dresser, the dude with the prunes, pruning shears. Dude with the pruning shears. First reason he does this. First reason he prunes. He's interested in more fruitfulness than we have in mind. A good gardener cuts because he's not just concerned about the present, he's concerned about the future. He's planning for how the vine could be more fruitful next year or in three years or in five years. So he does things that don't seem necessary today. Things are fine today. Put the shears away. Things are fine. He's actually not interested in fine. 
C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this about pruning in his own life. He tells a story about when he was a kid, and this is, this is definitely the story in my house. Uh, when you have a toothache, you can go to your mom and say, Mom, I got a toothache, and she can give you aspirin. Except for you don't do that. Because mom will give you the aspirin, and it'll feel better, but then the next day she's like, you got to go to the dentist. And this is what C.S. Lewis says about trips to the dentist. And this had to be way worse in the early 20th century when he was a kid. He's like, I know those dentists. I know they start fiddling about with the teeth that haven't yet begun to ache in their efforts to repair the one that does. The Lord is kind of like those dentists. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin which they're ashamed of or which is obviously spoiling daily life. Yeah, fine, we're all about that. Well, cure it he may, but he will not stop there. That might be all you ask, but if once you call him in, he's going to give you the full treatment. He's interested in more fruitfulness than you care about. He's always more interested in your life shining like Jesus Christ than you are in any given moment. And in the end, as we're going to see next week, that's what joy is all about. Jesus leads all this up to verse 11 saying, I'm only telling you all this so that you will experience the joy for which you were created, which you cannot possibly access unless I talk to you this way. He's interested in more fruitfulness than we care about. That's the first reason he prunes. And the second reason is this. It's related. Whenever a branch is pruned, and this is really important, it can't rely on its life anymore for like the photosynthesis coming through the leaves on, on the branches. All of the life that it needs to keep going, it has to now draw directly from the vine. Once a branch is pruned, it has to draw on the entire vine like never before and like it never would otherwise. All life has to come upward from the vine all of a sudden, like it's supposed to, all the time, but rarely does. Pruning reveals your true trust. Let me say that again. Pruning reveals what you trust in most to draw life from. And it's good to have your true trust revealed. Sometimes it saves your soul. And it certainly sanctifies your soul. Let me just end with a couple examples. Uh, a pastor in our uh, denomination, Presbyterian Church in America in Manhattan, uh, Tim Keller, uh, who was involved indirectly from the planning of this church 20 years ago. Uh, he was diagnosed with stage four, if any of you know about pancreatic cancer, stage four pancreatic cancer in March 2020. And, and, and the doctors just said, this will kill you. It's just a matter of time. And they thought it would kill him much sooner than now, but he was on the podcast this past week of Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. By the way, just total aside, if you're ever looking for a good podcast that really wrestles with church and issues in the world, and controversial issues, and looking back to scripture and talking to thought leaders in Christ around the world, this is a really good podcast, Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. He was talking to Keller this week. And Keller said, listen, I know this sounds cliche, but uh, we're, I'm still here, I'm still alive, and the main thing that I'm realizing is that neither I nor my wife would ever, ever want to go back to the prayer life we had before this happened. 
and you can dis- disbelieve me, you can think I'm just saying that because I'm a pastor on a podcast, it's the truth. You could take that as just a nice comment on a podcast of a pastor making meaning for an audience in a tough moment. Or you could consider that Jesus Christ himself said these very words the day before the life of his body was pruned away entirely according to the Father's will so that his resurrection life could abound to multitudes, including yours and mine. It's like the gospel itself coming through his lips to our ears. Hardship is one of the ways he prunes. It's just the truth. And you know, if you, you know some of the people in our congregation that are going through it, you know some of the people in our home meeting that are going through it, you certainly know other Christians in the world that are going through it if our liturgists are doing any kind of job, and they are doing some kind of job leading us in prayer. Another way. Second way in closing. First is hardship. Another way that God prunes these branches, sending. We are a church planning communion. And the vision has always been, uh, not that there's anything wrong with massive, wonderful churches that set up shop. I mean, thank God. Thank God. I mean it. For churches that are massive, with many, many hundreds or thousands or 10,000 people that are healthy and flourishing. It's just, it just wasn't the vision that this church is planted out of. And as we're going to talk about in this series, for better and for worse, some of the stuff that's there when you plant, some of the vision that's there when you plant is really hard to shake off. One of those things is when you're small, approaching medium size, you're pregnant. Now, we collectively can decide what we want to do about this 2023 forward as we listen to the Spirit through the Word. But I got to tell you, it's been ridiculously painful sending people. To start a new church? You look at Acts 13, where the church planning movement really explodes on purpose. I mean, they're planning churches because people are trying to kill them from Acts 8 to 13. But beginning in Acts 13, they start doing it on purpose. And they start taking their best and sending them to places where, like, it's going to be some kind of show, and not, not the good kind. Like, it's going to be tough. And they're sending their best. They're not, sending, they're not elbowing out the people of their church that they don't really want to hang out with anymore. And say, hey, why don't you go to Cyprus? We don't really want you in Antioch anymore. Send their best. Beautiful tears have been shed. Not just through us, but all over the city so that other churches could exist, so that people could hear and stumble into a basement while they're 20. And then there's this sending that's just to other churches that exist. Gosh. Sometimes I say things that kind of stroke my ego to myself and sometimes to you. Like, you know, if nobody ever moved from this church over the past 19 years, We'd be like 800 people now. (laughs) Except for like any church could say that. (laughs) Especially ones in the city where you get the blessing of saying hello to so many and the mandatory obligation of saying goodbye to just as many, if not more. Praise God that we get to sow a few things for a while and say goodbye to our best college students 
pastors, deacons, home meeting leaders, oaks of righteousness who have set up and blessed with their fruit for decades. That's the second way he brings. Hey, there's more, but I'm just going to give you one third one. The third one is, there, is his word. He prunes through his word. All the way back in verse 2, he says something crazy. In, excuse me, verse 3. Verse 3. And for the life of me, I have no idea why the ESV translates it this way, or the NRSV, or the NIV, or the KJV. Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. But that word clean is exactly the same word as prune. I have no idea why that isn't translated. Eugene Peterson is the only one I can find in the message. He translates it. I'm no scholar, but it seems like it should be. Already you are pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. I mean, in context, he's saying, you've been pruned already. It's not just bad stuff that's going to happen to you. It's not just sending. It's like, Every time you hear my word, you're pruned. That's what verse 3 means. So if you want to hasten the work of the Father, I mean, it's going to come if you're in Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, pruning will happen. If you want to hasten the work that leads to your joy, abide in his word. That's what he says. Abide in my word, verse 7. I know I'm going ahead. If you abide in me and my word abides in you. Verse 3, already you were clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. My words will prune you. I think I said this in a recent sermon. It's fascinating when the scriptures talk about the word of God. Uh, Psalm 19 says, it's like sweet. It's sweet like honey, the word of God. Hebrews 4 says, it's a sword that's double-edged and you can't get away from you and it's going to cut you. It's like, well, which is it? Both. The words of the living God cut off what's dying in you and prune away stuff for further growth that leads to joy and it's sweet. So I just want to ask you, where's the word of God in your life? How do we abide in his word? We have to open it and let it remain with us. There are Bible reading plans, one that Christine Matulowicz shared with you from the stage last week. It's in our weekly email. Stephen preached a a beautiful sermon last week on Psalm 1. Day and night, day and night, I meditate on the Word of God, and that's the only reason that I bear fruit in season, and my roots are like well-watered by a stream, so that when the season comes, when storms and hurricanes want to blow me over, somehow, by by the grace of God alone, I stand. Is that true for you? If it isn't, I got a day and night verse, and it's actually the one we read in our confession. Between now and the end of this series, we're going to have the same confession of sin every week. If you're new with us, we change it every week. Different passages from Scripture cutting us for the sake of greater fruitfulness. That's why we do it every week. We're going to use the same one, and the reason we're using this passage from 2 Chronicles 7.14 is because Philadelphia Gospel Movement, led by Terry Davis, who preached for us here this past September, beginning in November, has had this goal of trying to get every church he's connected to in Philadelphia to pray it every day at 7.14 a.m. and 7.14 p.m. 
and the references, 2 Chronicles 7.14, and it goes like this. The Lord says to all the people who are called by my name, if you will humble yourselves, if you will seek my face and pray, and if you will repent of your wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sins, and I will heal your land. I, want to, I just want to invite, of course, I can't make you do anything, but I want to invite us to join the rest of the body of Christ in this city that is participating in this. And several churches that we're very close to have been doing it for two months already. For the next seven weeks, would you set a reminder on your phone? I'm going to announce this every single week. For 7.14 a.m. and 7.14 p.m. to apply that Psalm 1, evening and morning, meditating on the Word of God, turning it into prayer. And i got to tell you, if you're looking to start a habit of abiding in the Word of God, I've been saying this for a long time, and many people said it before me. It's the rhythm, not the length. If you want to turn over a new leaf in terms of listening to the words of God so that you might be pruned unto fruitfulness and joy, make it a regular thing rather than a totally exhaustive thing where like, you're trying to take in a whole chapter of the Bible at a time and you've never done it before. One verse twice a day can actually be really effective too. You're going to hear more on that. I don't want to beat the dead horse. You're going to hear about that every week. Friends, abide in him and he in you. This is how we live as the very presence of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.